Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I am your host, Jagisha, and with me, my co-host, Shannon. Today, we talk to Rosie Walsh about her new book, The Love of My Life. And since it's National Poetry Month, we thought we'd give you some poetry readings. So let's get started. Our guest today is Rosie Walsh. Her debut novel, Ghosted, was an instant bestseller that received excellent reviews and sold more than 1 million copies worldwide. NPR called it a gripping and surprising romantic suspense story. She is here today to tell us about her latest novel, The Love of My Life. And can I just say congratulations because it is now the Good Morning America pick for March. So congratulations on that and welcome. It is. Thank you ever so much. I'm very happy to be here. And yeah, everything that's been happening since this book came out has been pretty dreamy, really. Well, so tell us about it. Uh, What are readers going to find in your novel? Uh, So The Love of My Life is about Emma and Leo, who uh, to the outside world look like, you know, the happiest couple you've ever seen. They've got fantastic jobs. Emma is a marine biologist. Leo's an obituary writer. They've got a lovely daughter. They live in a lovely ramshackle house in a really old part of London. Um, But at the beginning of the novel, Emma's waiting to find out if she uh, has successfully been treated for cancer. And Leo is doing what he does best, which is to write obituaries, specifically her obituary. But in the course of basic fact checking about Emma's life, Leo discovers that his wife is not who she says she was. What was the inspiration behind the novel? I think all writers have a part of their brain that just kind of lights up when they hear something that could be the seed of a novel. And my brain lit up um, at a dinner party that was probably about nine years ago now. Have to be honest, dinner, the dinner party was not going well. The conversation was stilted, to say the least. <laughs> and um, we were talking about obituaries because one of the people at the table had uh, recently written an obituary for somebody. And I didn't realise that most obituaries are written before, long before the person dies. And I guess that's, you know, that's quite obvious now. But, um, you know, there's thousands and thousands of them in filing cabinets at every newspaper's office in the world, really. And um, I just immediately thought, oh, my gosh, obituary writing, that is a fascinating job. And I bet there are so many brilliant stories that come out of that work. And so I just made a note in my phone, obituary writer starts researching someone's life, discovers that things are not quite as they should be. Um, and that soon became obituary writer discovered, starts researching his wife's life and discovers things are not quite as they should be. And from there, I was off. So that's really fascinating. I didn't realize that people started writing those before someone passed away. Uh, that's new. Me neither. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I didn't know either. Um, and when I said, when mentioned it to a journalist, he just laughed and said, well, how, how on earth do you expect these beautifully written obituaries to be published online, you know, within a couple of hours of the person dying? So, of course, it makes sense. But what I love about it and, you know, the research that I've done is that, um, that the art of obituary writing is not just a sort of niche thing in a corner of journalism. It's a really big deal. There's a huge community uh, of obituary writers globally and they are all busy all of the time. You know, they don't need somebody to have died. If somebody's just, you know, cancelled a, a concert because they're not feeling well, you can guarantee that their obituary is going to be written, being written by somebody. And most of these newspapers have filing cabinets full of thousands and thousands of what's called stock obituaries Um, and for a lot of them you know they're they're pre-written but for many of them it's just you know piles of old press clippings on old pieces of paper and cardboard from years ago. 
it's it's a fascinating business to be honest I nearly I think I think I nearly quit writing and ran off with the obituary circuit <laughs> when I was researching it <laughs> so the other uh, or Emma's career is a marine biologist so what made you decide to choose the, the obituary writer and the marine bi- biologist and put that together I know they're two quite unusual careers to put together I guess um the reason for Leah, as I've said, was that um, as soon as I started thinking about obituaries, I knew that it was going to be an absolute goldmine of fascinating stories. But for Emma, actually, the choice uh, to, to make her a marine biologist was quite selfish. Um, when I wrote Ghosted, the previous novel, um, the natural world, I guess, sort of became almost like a third character in the novel. It became absolutely integral to the plot and the emotional landscape of my characters. And so when I set out to write The Love of My Life, I knew that I wanted to do something similar, uh, even though the plot was in no way similar. And um, all I knew at the beginning was that Emma was lying to Leo, her husband, about who she was. And I didn't know why. All I knew was that I wanted her to be alone with these secrets under a massive sky with the sea rolling in and out. And that's where I started. So I thought, great, okay. I'll make her a marine biologist. But as, of course, as soon as I started researching it, I realised there's about 50 different jobs within that umbrella. So it took quite a while to work out which which just felt right for Emma. And really, in the end, it was an instinctive reaction. And you you kind of touched on this, but what was the research like for the book? It sounds like it was fascinating. Oh, gosh, the research for this book was extensive. I mean, I've probably got close to 100 reference books still and probably the same number of notebooks just absolutely crammed with notes and musings and transcripts of conversations with scientists with doctors with people who work in child services uh, with people who work in mental health services it went on and on I mean it took the book took four years to write and I think largely that's because there was such a huge volume of research to do Um, but for me I find that I cannot write character And I cannot layer a plot unless I've done really, unless I've done a lot of really immersive research. I need to really insert myself into my characters' worlds, not just wander around where they live. I need to spend time in their offices or their laboratories or their theatres or their television studios. You know, I can't, I can't start with a few words and, and go from there. I need, I need to spend days with people who are living the lives that my characters are living. So were you able to talk to other or at marine biologists and uh, I guess I have them go over what, what the different careers are and so forth? So I spoke to a whole bunch of marine biologists and eventually I spoke to an intertidal ecologist. And intertidal ecology is um, the zone which is sort of exposed at low tide and covered at high tide. Um, so that that zone where anything living there needs to be used to be able to living either underwater or in or in the open air. Did you end up going out on a boat and I don't know studying marine life? <laughs> I didn't go out on a boat, but that's largely because Emma is an intertidal ecologist, so they just work on that part of the shoreline that's only exposed um, at low tide. Um, and submerged at high tide so I didn't get to go out on a boat at all which is probably for the best because I get badly travel sick but I did do a lot of rock pooling and beach combing I spent a lot of time in labs and it was tricky you know even when you ask them to simplify their words for you know fairly fairly unscientifically educated layman I couldn't understand half of what they were saying it was a nightmare but fascinating nightmare 
So did you find certain aspects of the book a challenge to write or were there any surprises for you that you that were unexpected as you were writing this, the, the story? I mean, it's been my experience. This is my sixth novel and my second in the US. And it's been my experience thus far that um, every single book um, is totally different um, as a sort of writing journey. And for me, this one was significantly different to the rest, um, I suppose. Firstly, in that I normally plan my books quite meticulously, scene by scene with, you know, I've got a whole complicated post-it note system. I, I, I'm not quite sure what you guys call them, maybe sticky notes, where mm-hmm. you can stick notes on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. I normally plot quite extensively scene by scene using post-it notes. Um, with this one, I'd been working on it for eight months and been unable to plot it. And so at that point, I just had to make the slightly terrifying decision to just go for it and start writing and trust that it would eventually write itself because it seemed impossible to plot. And um, anyone who's read it will probably see that it was quite a, it's a fiendishly difficult plot to hold together. So I think, you know, that was very unusual for me, not knowing where I was going. And at times I found it really hard. It was a real struggle. And at times I very nearly gave up on this book. And if it wasn't for my agent cracking the whip and basically (laughs) insisting that I carried on, I'm really not sure I would have done. I started reading blogs by authors about, you know, about how to walk away from your novel that isn't working. And I was convinced that that was my path. So I'm quite glad I stuck it out, really. Oh, yeah. Yep, definitely. One of the questions we ask is, uh, what are you reading or what do you recommend if you've got a couple of books that you'd suggest for us? Mm. Um, One of the most exciting books I've read recently is a book called Wrong Place, Wrong Time by an author called Gillian McAllister. And uh, that is due to come out in the States, I think in May. It's an absolutely fascinating psychological thriller, really high concept one. That was fantastic. Um, I am currently reading a book that probably loads of listeners have read. And that is the last thing he told me by Laura Dave, because we're doing an event together on Saturday, this coming Saturday. Um, But at the moment, loads of books are publishing. So my desk is absolutely covered in books being sent in for review quotes, which is Mm -hmm. uh, slightly stressful. But what a huge privilege. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the most fascinating part of it is is like, oh, look, now they want to hear about what I think. So (laughs) previously, I'm not sure anyone did, (laughs) but I'll take it. I'll take it. So as we wrap up, what do you hope readers take away from your book? Oh. I think there are many lessons. Uh, There's lots of sort of meaty moral dilemmas to discuss in that book, but I hope that what most most people will come away with is the willingness to forgive, to really crack open that painful, thorny subject of self-forgiveness and self-compassion. I think particularly women, we're so incredibly hard on ourselves. And what Emma goes through in the story, particularly the past tense story, when we discover about why she's been lying for all all of these years, it's it's pretty hard going and self-forgiveness is at the absolute center of of her journey. That's a great sentiment. Uh, I I do agree. Women are very hard on themselves. So absolutely. Mm. Our guest today was Rosie Walsh. The Love of My Life is available here at the Kirkwood Public Library and wherever riveting books are sold. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks so much. In honor of National Poetry Month, we have several librarians reading their favorite poems. Hello, my name is Bob McMullen, and I work in youth services at the Kirkwood Public Library. The poem I like the best is The Summer Day 
by the poet Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And to repeat those last two lines, because I think they're so important, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That's our episode for this week. Thank you so much to Rosie Walsh for joining us. And thank you so much for our coworkers for sharing their poetry with us. Please join us next week when we welcome Evan Hughes to the podcast. I'd like to end today with my favorite uh, love poem by one of my favorite authors. It's called I Carry Your Heart With Me, I Carry It In by E.E. Cummings. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. And that is our episode. Thank you for joining us and for listening, and we'll see you next week.